Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. So glad you could join us today. This Saturday is Veterans Day, and tomorrow many federal and many state offices will be closed, along with libraries, banks, and many other businesses. The day now observed as a federal holiday to honor all veterans goes back to 1918. At 11 o'clock on the 11th day of the 11th month, World War I ended. This morning, we mark the upcoming Veterans Day with a documentary about Ojibwe and Dakota language speakers who worked for the U.S. military as code talkers. It's called Decoded, Native Veterans in Minnesota Who Helped Win World War II. It's about how a U.S. government that tried to destroy indigenous cultures used indigenous languages as a weapon on the battlefield. But first, we'll listen back to a conversation I had on Veterans Day in 2021 about what it means to say thank you for your service. My guests were Tom McKenna, a veteran of the Iraq War and a veterans advocate with Every Third Saturday. That's a nonprofit supporting veterans in Minnesota. I also spoke with Eli Redding, a licensed clinical psychologist who works with veterans in his practice. And Brad Lindsay, who is now the temporary commissioner at the Minnesota Department of Veterans Affairs. I asked Brad what his military service means to him. You know, I, I spent uh, about 14 years in the regular army uh, and the reserve forces and um, spent most of my civilian life in service to veterans. Uh, mm-hmm. I've been with the Department of Veterans Affairs or the county as a veteran service officer since 1999. So it's kind of the only thing I know. A lifelong commitment for you, right? Absolutely. So it's, it's really defined who, who you are. It has. Yes, absolutely. And uh, couldn't be happier uh, to have the opportunity to serve my my brother and sister veterans. Tom, you're also a veteran. Uh, As you you look back on your military service, what does it mean to you? It's it's uh, multifaceted what it what it means. Um, It was a great experience. It was um, besides marrying my wife was the best thing I ever did. (laughs) And uh, and um, but it was also punctuated by um, a few very, very bad days. And, um, and so uh, my service means that, that I, I put my hand up and I went and I served. Um, but it also means that I've, I've had to uh, deal with some of the ramifications of that uh, you know, uh, post-service. What, what branch of the military were you in, Tom? I was in the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. And so as time has gone by, do you reflect on it differently? Than maybe when you first got out. Absolutely. Uh, when I first got out as a 22 year old, um, you know, I wanted to make it a career, and I, I I got injured, so I couldn't do that, and uh, had had some PTSD issues, and um, so at that time I didn't deal with it very well. It was a it was a difficult experience transitioning out of the military, and and now years later I'm able to reflect on it uh, with the the a much more mature way. Is Veterans Day a difficult day or a good day? Veterans Day is a good day. Um, I would say uh, Memorial Day sometimes can be more difficult, but mm-hmm. uh, Veterans Day is a good day. And Brad, what about you? Is is Veterans Day a good day for you or a day that you don't so much look forward to? It, it's absolutely a good day. Um, not so much for myself. Um, I, I'm kind of shy about the uh, thank you for your service type of thing, but um, 
we, we have to have the opportunity to, to thank all the veterans out there um, because they are really becoming every day a smaller part of the population. It's only about 5% of the Minnesota population right now. So mm. we have to keep that in in the public's mind and, and make sure that we're, we're treating uh, our veterans correctly um, for the sacrifices they made. All right. Uh, Eli, you have worked with veterans in your therapy practice. Is there something that you've heard your patients say, um, you know, consistently about their service that has really stayed with you? Yeah, I think uh, most of the veterans I've worked with really honor their service and really um, have taken a lot of positives away, even if that service is complicated, like Tom said, and, and occasionally has some very bad days in it. Um, I also think that those veterans recognize kind of the complications behind service and kind of having to grapple with that um, in a public sphere. Mm-hmm. I want to take some phone calls from our listeners in Excelsior. This is David. Good morning, David. Good morning. Hi. Uh, I'm a Vietnam combat veteran, mm-hmm. and there are many veterans that I'm aware of that have a complicated history with their military service and the idea of someone saying thank you for your service. Most of the time, I hear thank you for your service um, when I go to a a big box store, Mm -hmm. and they've been told if you pull out your ID to get a uh, veteran discount to say thank you for your service. And to me, it feels like a perfunctory comment. What it is not acknowledging is that complicated history that some veterans have. For those veterans with moral injury, something that the VA has yet to put on its uh, presumptive list of possibilities. Moral injury is something that often lies underneath uh, PTSD for veterans. Moral injury is typically uh, something that has uh, affected the veteran that they've seen or participated in while they were in the military that rocked to the core their belief of who they are as a human being and to hear thank you for your service uh, can be Mm re-traumatizing for veterans with moral injury because they may feel as I do that I'm a murderer and saying thank you for your service is not what you want to hear. If somebody wants to say something to a veteran, tell them thank you for your sacrifice. At least it's acknowledging mm-hmm. that. Then it can encompass all manner of histories with their military service. The personal sacrifice. Uh, thank you, David, for calling in and, and sharing that. Um, Eli, can you tell us more about uh, the moral injury that he described David, uh, who is a Vietnam veteran. Yeah, absolutely. So moral injury is this concept um, that 
many veterans um, experience or do things that are contrary to uh, their moral sets and standards. And that causes long-term kind of emotional and mental health concerns. So this idea that I have done something or I have seen something that completely goes counter to the things I value as a person. Um, we then have to work with that in therapy and we have to go through those things and kind of reorient ourselves to the meaning of those things. And it can be a really long journey and road um, to walk. Tom, you reference PTSD after you got out. Um, can you share more about what is causing that or caused that? Sure. Um, it was those those very very bad days. Those couple of very bad days um, that caused that that PTSD um, onset, and and that manifests in it can be anger and hypervigilance. It can be um, you know uh, flashbacks. What what I discovered over time, and what we focus on it every third Saturday very heavily, is is moral injury. So I'm I'm glad David brought it up. Um, I, I've determined, at least in my own case, that that it is the moral injury as opposed to the PTSD that has caused uh, more more challenges. Tom, tell me more about uh, the group every third Saturday. Uh, what you do? Clearly, you do it every third Saturday. But what are you doing out there? <laughs> we we used to do it every third Saturday, mm -hmm. and uh, and so we started uh, about eleven years ago distributing supplies to veterans in need at the VA Medical Center in Minneapolis. And we did that on the third Saturday of each month. Mm. And it was just an informal effort. So uh, the veterans actually started calling us the every third Saturday people. So in 2016, when we incorporated as a full nonprofit, we kept the name, but we are now open Tuesday through Friday, nine to four. And uh, we have a supply store for veterans to shop um, for whatever kind of uh, physical needs they may have. And then we have a six week course for veterans called Warrior's Path, which which is where we focus on that moral injury piece. So clearly it's more than giving out supplies. There's uh, a, a lot of inter interactions there that are valuable for everyone. Yeah, we hope mm -hmm. so. Um, we've, uh, it's been uh, extremely busy, and, and it's great to, to see veterans coming forward, wanting mm -hmm. to uh, explore some of the things that, that are really challenging in their life. In Minneapolis, Claudia is on the phone. Good morning, Claudia. Hi, good morning. Thank you for taking the call. Um, I'm calling with a little bit of a different perspective. Um, over the years, I have changed my view of my service. Uh, things were really good for me. I worked in a hospital for six years uh, around the time of the beginning of Iraq War. And what branch of the military, um, Claudia, were you in? In the Army. In the, the Army. Army. Okay. So I was in the D.C. area, So, um, I, and I was in, a, uh, in an ancillary hospital, not at Walter Reed, but we did see people from Walter Reed who came for rehab with um, that were double amputees, triple, even quadruple amputees, and I knew for, from physicians in the hospital that were treating um, people that just had horrible conditions and just all these consequences for a war that, well, we know it really was started on, on false premises. And it has made me rethink um, this push that we have, you know, for it's great the service that people do, but I think it's just so unfair to put our, our, our young people through through all of this suffering for things that really are not worth it. And I'm hearing more of that from my daughters. I have twin daughters who are 18. Mm -hmm. And they're seeing like the whole other side of it, thinking it's horrible what the military does to our young people. And just this whole idea 
um, that we are a country that's so dominating and and now we're pushing for military surveys and and for wars and all these things for for reasons that are sometimes really not worth it. And Veterans Day, is this a a good day for you or a hard day for you, Claudia? It's hard because I think of those patients and I think of people that even now uh, are living on the streets and are suffering from all all these mental health issues and just um, terrible living conditions because of what they went through. And again, for reasons that are questionable. Claudia, thank you for calling in. I appreciate hearing your your story and your insight. Uh, Let's take another phone call from a listener as we talk with veterans in West St. Paul. Brad is on the phone. Good morning, Brad. Good morning. And what did you want to share with us? Well, um, as far as the question about when people thank me for my service, Mm -hmm. um, I joined the service when I was 18. The reason I joined the service was not because I'm like patriotic or wanted to serve my country. I wanted to get out of the crappy little town I grew up in <laughs> and, and, and see the world. And um, I didn't have to, you know, endure combat. I made sure that I wouldn't be in a situation to do that. I, I volunteered for submarine duty. And when was this? I, what I, year was this? When did you serve, Brad? 70, 73 to 81. So you, you served in Vietnam? No, no, but the war was going on when I enlisted, and um, by the time I got done with my training, um, it was almost wrapped up, and like I said, I was on a submarine, so um, I just um, feel like you you don't need to thank me. Um, I did it for personal reasons mm-hmm. that were um, well thought out, you know? All right, that's Brad calling in from West St. Paul. To our guest, Brad, um, at the Minnesota Department of Veterans Affairs, um, what do you hear and what that Brad just shared? It's definitely something that uh, tends to make me a little uncomfortable as well. Um, I have to always keep in mind that most people now haven't served in the the military. You know, 95% of the state is not. Um, So it's, it's... Coming from a good place and an appreciation. Um, But, yeah, it still makes me a little uncomfortable. Most vets always think there's somebody else that did more than them. And that thank you should be reserved Mm -hmm. for that someone else. And the previous caller, uh, Claudia, who's a physical therapist now, talked about uh, the trauma she experienced, the trauma that she hears about from uh, veterans who she's working with as a physical therapist. And, you know, she said... You know, she looks back and, 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 and views it differently now. It's very painful to her when she thinks about her military service. Is that something that you hear a lot from, from veterans? Um, it, it, really, it really varies. Um, I think, um, you know, I, I would say most veterans in my experience uh, over time, um, you know, especially the ones that don't have the the uh, deeper issues such as PTSD and things like that tend to, you know, forget the bad stuff from their military and uh, you remember more of the good side of things and, and, you know, maybe even romanticize it a little bit. Mm. Let's talk with a listener in Minneapolis. Renee's on the line. Good morning, Renee. Yes, good morning. I am the VFW Auxiliary President in Minneapolis and that's the Veterans of Foreign Wars. And My husband is also a combat veteran, also served in Iraq and Panama, 
and he happens to work for the Minnesota Assistance uh, Council for Veterans. So we see a lot of veterans um, through the different service organizations daily, and there are just two things I would love to give my perspective on as a civilian and a spouse of a veteran Mm -hmm. is, one, when it comes to the statement, thank you for your service. I would truly encourage folks to examine what is motivating them to say that and what type of connection that they're looking to have with that veteran. Oftentimes, it, it may come across as um, not necessarily insincere, but more of just something that folks sh- feel they should say because they want to connect to the veteran community, but maybe don't know how to do so to honor a veteran. So one thing, the second point I would make is, please, if you do have veterans in your family, have a conversation with them and and maybe ask how they feel about it. Do they want to be approached? As long as the focus is on the veteran and finding ways to connect and support them once their service has ended, I think that can truly help keep our community connected. So, Renee, is there a better question, like, you know, or like, you know, would you ask someone, what branch of the military did you serve in? I mean, is there a better way, like if you you have a curiosity or you want to acknowledge this, what would be a better question to ask or a better comment to make? Well, I certainly am not a veteran or an expert to answer that. I think it'd be a good question for the veterans. Mm -hmm. However, one thing I found is when I am speaking to a veteran, a new veteran at our VFW, for example... I'll ask, oh, when did, when did you ETS? When did you get out? What mm-hmm. branch were you in? Maybe ask them questions that don't necessarily um, bring up a specific, as Tom referred to, bad day, maybe right. finding a way to open that conversation. And that way the veteran can very comfortably either decide to answer that question or close the conversation, or if they feel comfortable, share more Mm -hmm. and start that genuine dialogue. Does that make sense? It does. Thank you for calling, Renee. Uh, Tom, our our guest, you're a veteran of the Iraq War. You're working with veterans there with with your um, nonprofit. Let me ask you, like, when you hear those words or, or people say to you, thank you for your service, how does that make you feel? Uh, For a long time, it made me feel um, my internal response, internal response was always, if, if you knew what I had done, if you knew where I, what had happened, you wouldn't be thanking me. Mm. Um, and, and as I've grown and matured, um, and, and, and gone through, um, therapy and, and different things, I've come to realize that people are saying that because, uh, they generally, they want to connect. Um, uh, Renee makes a great point that you, you have to try to see it from the perspective of the person that's that's approaching you and and saying thank you for your service. Sometimes it is perfunctory, but other times it's very genuine. Is there a better question if someone is, does want to connect and talk to you? For me, thank you for your service is is appropriate, and uh, especially when it, you know it comes with a handshake and a look in the eye, it, mm-hmm. it, it is appropriate um, for my own mental well being and 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 health. I tend not to want to talk with, with strangers uh, where I served, when I served, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I, I think thank you for your service is appropriate. Let's talk to Micah in Maplewood. Good morning, Micah. Good morning, and thank you for taking my call. Sure. What did you want to tell us? Yes, when I, I hear that phrase, I think of the def- different identities uh, 
um, different intersection. Um, when they say military, mm-hmm. they think automatically white cis men. And um, in 2019, I did a mini documentary called Instead of Thank You for Your Service. And it's poking at those identities. Um, so as a woman of color, I always get um, thank your husband for his service. As a queer person, don't ask, don't tell. Micah, are you a Asian, veteran? Are you a veteran? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. I was in the Air Force for seven years. Um, as an Asian person, the stereotype of being married to white men, and also, you know, as a person of color, we serve too. Um, I have an older brother and sister that was in the Navy, and I have an older brother still serving in the Army. And the other issues we have is the invisible war, um, which is, yes, sexual assault in the military, and also deportation of um, veterans. If people don't know that that is happening, they need to Google that. Um, I just wanted to share those different identities and experience as a veteran. Micah, thank you for calling. And um, Micah, I I hear your pain, and, and I'm, I'm so... Sorry that this is is difficult to talk about, but I'm glad that you were courageous enough to 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 bring your experience uh, to the air so people can can hear this. And um, Eli, as a therapist uh, who works a lot with veterans, um, the issues that Michael brought up, uh, stereotypes of uh, you know of, of people of color, uh, sexual assault in the military, are these the type of conversations that send people to therapists like you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I really want to thank Micah for bringing this up because we do know that um, minority individuals, uh, different racial minorities uh, tend to serve at higher rates even than uh, white individuals per capita. And so uh, we get people from all walks of life and all different stories um, and all different experiences within the military. And if it's seen as this very white male dominated um issue that can then uh, take away from other service members who um, don't identify as white or male or uh, cisgender or heterosexual, whatever it is, um, and take away from their experience and their pride in their service. And I think that's really hard for many people. We've been listening to a conversation I had on Veterans Day in 2021. We heard from Tom McKenna, a veteran of the Iraq War and a veterans advocate with Every Third Saturday. That's a nonprofit supporting veterans in Minnesota. I also spoke with Eli Redding, a licensed clinical psychologist who works with veterans in his practice. And Brad Lindsay, who is now the temporary commissioner of the Minnesota Department of Veterans Affairs. Next, a special documentary from Ampers, Diverse Radio for Minnesota's Communities. It's called Decoded, Native Veterans in Minnesota Who Helped Win World War II. He didn't talk about his service. I didn't know until recently that he even served in in World War II, let alone what he did in the war. My name is Travis Zimmerman. And you're listening to Decoded, untold stories of Native veterans from Minnesota who helped win World War II. Lex Porter was one of those veterans. 
an Ojibwe-speaking code talker from Grand Portage, and a member of the Fond du Lac Band. So what did you think when you first heard that they wanted to honor your grandfather, especially for something that you really didn't know about? I, I, I was surprised. This is his grandson, Freedom Porter. I, I wanted to know if they got it right, right first. If it was, if there was, if, he, if it was the right person, that it was actually my my grandpa who who's going to be recognized. We were also surprised, and then it, it started sinking in, and the shock was replaced with pride, something that we were all very, very proud of. Code talkers use native languages to encrypt battlefield messages for the United States military. I've been interested in learning more about them for a long time. For one thing, I'm from a military family. My dad and my uncle served in various branches of the military. My dad's uncle served in World War II, and all his brothers fought in Vietnam. I enlisted in 1987 and was stationed at Fort Riley, Kansas. I was able to get my degree in history thanks to the GI Bill. Currently, I'm the site manager at the Mille Lacs Indian Museum and Trading Post, which is run by the Minnesota Historical Society. About 15 years ago, the Smithsonian was doing a traveling exhibit on code talkers, and they asked me to look into Dakota and Ojibwe veterans who might have been code talkers. I learned about a Dakota man from Lower Sioux named Reuben St. Clair, and I found out about a few others, but I ran into a roadblock. I learned that most of the men had been sworn to secrecy during the war, kept those secrets as long as they lived. Lex Porter did. He would say he was, I was just a radio man. And he was. He just didn't say what the messages were he delivered. <laughs> and in what language they might have mm-hmm. been in, huh? <laughs> yeah. In this program, you'll hear more about Lex Porter and Reuben St. Clair. But there are hundreds, maybe thousands, of others we may never know about. The World War II Kotaka program was declassified in 1968. By the 1970s, authors started writing books about Navajo, or Diné speakers, whom the Marines recruited for the Pacific Theater. But it was only this century that the public learned how massive the contribution really was. And part of what we learned is from a documentary by Tribal Eye Productions called The Language of Victory. Here is an excerpt. In the year 2000, Congress passed the first legislation to honor code talkers when the 420 Navajo code talkers were awarded gold and silver congressional medals. Then, in 2008, Congress passed the Code Talker Recognition Act to acknowledge the other tribes whose languages had also been used as codes and to acknowledge the dedication and valor of Native American code talkers, as well as to honor the incomparable contribution they made to our nation's freedom. The first Native code talkers fought in World War I. They used Choctaw to transmit radio messages from the battlefield in France. In World War II, the Marines developed a program using Navajo code talkers for communicating secrets in the fight against Japan. Twenty-nine Navajo Marines invented the code. Some of them were asked to go back to the reservation and find more men that were willing to enlist. Albert Smith was one of those recruits. We didn't have a term for uh, hand grenade. 
So we developed that and called it potato. And uh, when we were talking about the planes, in our code, we'd be talking about the birds. And if we were talking about the ships, we'd be talking about the fishes. Ako e aje, chite nil inde, watotao le kapa chita, totao e kaslaoya, e ado len le de beslo chito inso. Ako e de, e hotao chite sil inde. I said we were using the term ironfish when we were using torpedoes. See, it was a code, but it was the language and then the code, so that even if you spoke Navajo, you couldn't decipher the language, the coded language. While the Marines deployed code talkers in the Pacific theater, the Army had its own program in Europe. Roger Red Elk said he and others from the Comanche Nation completed basic training early in 1941. Then the Army asked them to devise a code from their language. Just for instance, bomber. We have words for airplane, but a bomber, there's no such word for a bomber. So we got together and kicked it around, and we come up with uh, the word in Comanche is noop, which means pregnant. You know, those bombers carry those big bombs under them like they had big bellies, like a pregnant woman. And that's what we called, called a bomber. We are lucky to have these early first-hand accounts from the men who developed and used codes that have never been broken. Since 2008, when Congress passed the Code Talker Recognition Act, Defense Department investigators have been trying to track down other Code Talkers. They've asked tribes and family members for help. Without documents, it hasn't been easy. And it's been challenging for us in Minnesota to find those stories, too. Decoded is a production of Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota communities with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. So I'm Iekiapiwi. Uh, My Washichu name is Darlene St. Clair. Um, we're at my house uh, in Fridley on the Mississippi River. Uh, in Dakota, we call that the Chachawakpa. Yeah, my uncle Ruben, who we'll be talking about today, is uh, most of his life worked as an artist. If you Google Ruben St. Clair, you'll learn about his painting. When I was a child, that's how I knew him. I knew him as an artist. You know, we would go to, we would be at Lower Sioux visiting, and I could just sit and watch him paint. And the living room was full of essentially his studio. He didn't call it that, but it's where he had all of his um, materials and his paints, and he would be in there painting, and I could watch him paint. The American Indian Film Gallery at the University of Arizona has a 1979 interview with Reuben St. Clair. And uh, we are of the Duakantua uh, Sioux tribe. Uh, we don't like the name Sioux because that's a French word meaning a snake in the grass. I guess the French called the Sioux that by because he snuck through the grass like a snake. <laughs> it wasn't, it didn't sound that bad, but... <laughs> 
Anyway, the, we like to be called the Coders, which we are. We are the Udewak and Tuansu. It is clear from that interview that Reuben St. Clair was a culture keeper. You have some um, artifacts lying here, Reuben. Yes, I do. Us? He proudly here shows the interviewer a peace pipe, a tomahawk, Here's the tomahawk here. and a breastplate. He also talks about his traditional lifestyle. Of course, I do a little fishing yet. I'm 72 years old now, and, but I, I still go out hunting and I, I fish and like that. And for every year I get my gear. Mostly, though, he talked about painting. Now everything is Indian. And I can make Indian paintings and sell them. Just, that's all I do is all Indian sceneries are paintings and buffalo and things like that. The sacred buffalo, which goes very good. Many Native people started seeing that things that they created might actually be kind of a cottage industry where you could sell things to tourists. This is Reuben St. Clair's niece, Darlene. A lot of what he uh, painted was for sale to tourists, although he did paint things um, in the region as well. And I have quite a few uh, pieces of uh, his work. My, my dad... Had. Even when Reuben St. Clair talked about World War II, the point was painting. He used to trade cigarettes for painting lessons. After the war, I was stationed in uh, Leipzig, Germany. And uh, there I... Uh, took lessons from some of the German painters. I used to go to their homes and I'd take them a package of cigarettes and then I learned a lot from the German painters because I was doing a lot of things wrong. But Darlene St. Clair said people who knew him better knew more about what happened during World War II. One of those people who knew him best was Darlene's father, Henry St. Clair. Henry and Reuben were raised in the same house. My dad knew him really, really well. It was not just like the typical uncle relationship that we might, where you see them now and again, but this person was more like another father. Before he died, Darlene's father wrote down a kind of timeline of Reuben's life. Darlene read us parts of that timeline. He was a corporal in the U.S. Army and served in World War II in um, the 7th Armored Division under General Patton. Reuben St. Clair was in the Battle of the Bulge, and he helped liberate Paris. He was injured when a tank he was riding in was shot out from under him. His bad leg plagued him the rest of his life. At this time, the U.S. Air Force was in charge of air fighting. The Air Force sent out cubs to spot the enemy soldiers. They were looking for heavy artillery. Uh, Reuben um, was also chosen to view the conditions of the prison camps that held Jewish and Polish prisoners. So he liberated a concentration camp. And he was also active as a code talker. He used Dakota language to communicate with other Dakota speakers while in Germany and France. Late in the war, the Air Force asked Reuben to fly reconnaissance missions that helped to end the war. And that's really all Darlene knows about her uncle's service. There may have been other code talkers from the Lower Sioux community, and we know of at least one Lakota speaker from Rosebud, but there were likely many more. The Dakota language is part of a larger shared language. It's a dialect. So people of the Ocheti Shakoni or the Seven Council Fires speak the different dialects of the same language. So a Dakota speaker could talk to a Lakota speaker 
and they can understand each other, even though dialectically there are, there are real differences and there's differences in words that you would use, but it's, it's generally understandable between a Lakota and a Dakota speaker. And because the Ocheti Shakoi is pretty large as a confederation of people, um, my guess is that my uncle could talk to other soldiers that spoke any of those related dialects. This is a way that you that they could communicate information that they did not want to fall into other hands, um, and it could be done effectively and accurately um, using native languages. What you're gathering, what you're seeing, they really wanted to make sure that that information was shared accurately but was protected as well. And I think uh, using Dakota language was a way that my uncle could contribute something uh, special to the military effort. And so I think that we don't even know all of the code talkers that are out there because I would imagine once they figured out that this person spoke this language and somebody else understood that language, they took advantage of that. So I think the the numbers of actual code talkers, I don't think we even know. It would only be the stories of those veterans of what they shared. And I don't know that they always shared this. Darlene said when she was growing up, she didn't know anything about code talkers, let alone her family connection. Her father told her about it after her uncle died in 1985. By then, President Reagan had recognized the Navajo code talkers. Darlene's dad even bought an early Navajo code talker G.I. Joe, complete with rifle, radio, and Marine Corps insignia. There's still... There are still many, many Native people who serve in the military. And I, I know that that's sometimes, for my students, because I'm a teacher, for my students, they ask, like, why would people join the military when there's just so many incidences of the federal government acting in ways that are hostile, even genocidal towards Native people? My uncle, oh, he definitely saw racism in the military. The Native people all kind of were called chief <laughs> If you were native, you just kind of got, it's like people didn't bother to like get to know you. You just kind of had this label and they would refer to you as, hey, chief, to go ahead and do this or whatever. So that was pretty common. My experience of, of the people in my circle and my family that were in the military is they were serving in the military because they were defending this land. This land that we're on is Dakota land. This is Minnesota Makoche. They're defending their homelands more than they're defending everything that the U.S. stands for. Because Minnesota had code talkers, we were eligible for a traveling exhibit from the National Museum of the American Indian called Native Words, Native Warriors. To open the exhibit, we had an honoring ceremony for Reuben St. Clair and his family. After the Smithsonian exhibit, the Department of Defense kept up its investigation to identify more code talkers. Then on November 20th, 2013, Speaker of the House John Boehner presided over a congressional gold medal ceremony. They say every medal tells a story, but by adding these men to such lofty ranks, we also mean to add their story. Uh, one worth honoring today 
one worth retelling every day. And thank you all for being here. Ladies and gentlemen, please stand for the presentation of the colors by the United States Army. By 2013, only a handful of code talkers were alive to receive their medals in person. Before the occasion, Emancipation Hall was full of tribal representatives and family members. Freedom Porter was at the 2013 ceremony because his grandfather, Lex Porter, was a code talker. Lex Porter's brother and sister were there along with their children, Freedom's cousins, and the chairwoman of the Fond du Lac Band of Lake Superior Chippewa, where Lex Porter was a member. So there were other code talkers being represented from other tribes during this ceremony? Well, it, was all, it was from, it was from all, all, all throughout the country. The ones who were still alive... I um, actually went, and there was a handful of really old men who were, who were, who were there who actually got the, their medals in person. And then there was families like, like us, whose um, who's veteran was no longer, no longer with us. Leaders of the House and Senate spoke about how important the co-talkers were to the Allied victory in World War II. Then they all rose to shake hands with the leaders of 33 tribal nations. Crow Creek Sioux Tribe, Crow Nation, Fond du Lac Band of Lake Superior Chippewa, Fort Peck Assiniboine and Sioux Tribes of Montana, Ho-Chunk Nation of Wisconsin, Hopi Tribe. There was one who gave a really touching, touching speech, and I think it was, was um, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs. It's the part that really resonated with me, was that these the code talkers, those, those young men who went to World War II to, con, to fight, they swore a lifetime to secrecy, and they never told our story. And that it was time that we, that we tell our story now. For their narrative is an essential piece of our narrative. Their journey is our journey, and as demonstrated by our code talkers, our nation's future is built on their contributions to our history. The medal says the um, Lake Superior Band of Fond du Lac Chippewa is a code talker. The front design is of a Native American male, um, radio operator, um, symbolizing the code talker. And the back was part of this, the back is the Fond du Lac, the Fond du Lac emblem. Do you know who the artist was that yeah. ended up designing um, Jeff, the medal? You may know him. Um, Jeff Savage, I think Jeff that. Savage, yeah. 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 Savage. Freedom and I met at his house in Baxter, Minnesota. Freedom is from Grand Portage, just like me. And now he works for the Mille Lacs Band as a drug and alcohol counselor. And he's raising two young daughters. My daughter takes us to school every Veterans Day. When we first got this, she called it the Big Quarter. She understands now what it is. But the name stuck. It's time to take the big quarter to show my friends, is what she says every Veterans Day. Lex is my paternal, my paternal grandfather. He passed away when I was about 11 or 12. 
so I don't remember much. He was always grandpa. The last memory I have of him, my sister and I had, were in Mille Lacs for, for, our, for our summer break that year, and I ran into him at the Mille Lacs powwow, and that was the last time I saw him alive. And I think that's um, a good way to remember, remember, remember someone. From what I've learned about him from my uncles, he, he wanted to preserve our language, um, our histories, our stories. I don't remember much about what, what he did to, to, as far as preservation, but I remember the, the stories he would try to teach me and how he would try to talk with Jibwe to me. So I, I knew it was important. I knew he was trying to, he was trying to teach. Decoded is a production of Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota communities with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. My name is Travis Zimmerman, and you're listening to Decoded, untold stories of Native veterans from Minnesota who helped win World War II. Reuben St. Clair and Lex Porter grew up in different Native nations. Reuben St. Clair served in Europe. Lex Porter served in Japan. He served in the Pacific Theater, uh, the U.S. Army. He enlisted December 8th. It was right after Pearl Harbor, along with most, if not all of um, the male members of the community. He served for the duration, the duration of World War II. Neither man talked much about their experience as code talkers. We can only imagine what language they used or invented, who they worked with, and the risks they took. Only now are we beginning to understand and appreciate the magnitude of their contributions. The irony is that the government that once tried to destroy their culture and language later deployed it to win a war. There is a million reasons why for Native people having our languages is critical to our, not just our identity, but I would argue our survival. But I think this is one example of how native languages can benefit the United States. Today's U.S. military will credit the Code Talker program for helping the Allies, if not the reason why the Allies won World War II. But it's not something our history has recorded. It's not mainstream. That's why it's important to me. I want more people to take pride in knowing what their ancestors did in World War II. So much could have went wrong that didn't. And if someone like my grandpa or someone else's grandpa it can be credited for that, for what they did because of a language that's dying, you know, maybe it'll inspire people to learn it, to keep our language alive another generation or two. But it's important. Yeah, I think it's a really important story. And to me... Just the irony of it all that when kids were sent to boarding schools, they were punished for speaking their language, right? And so, like, language was literally beaten out of a whole generation of people that still held on to that language, and those languages ended up helping win the war. Some of these languages are endangered languages. They're 
losing fluent speakers, and that's what makes them endangered. So I think revitalization efforts for languages right now are really important, and that's why this story is important to tell too. And that's what I always think it's such a fascinating story because just the irony of it all that, you know, native languages were being destroyed, and yet they're the ones that helped win World War II. Dakota is my dad's first language. Dakota was Ruben's first language. I am the first generation to have English as my first language. So I've done the hard work of trying to learn Dakota. I'm imperfect. I'm still a language learner, but it's critically important. English is so dominant in the United States that even if you're trying to share your, lang- your home language, your heritage language with your children, the, they get so many social messages that that language doesn't matter and English is the only thing that matters. So we can do some things societally to encourage multilingualism for people who immigrate to the United States, encourage, encourage those children to hold on to those languages. It's important to have this linguistic diversity. This is a, a paradigm shift that we need to make in the United States away from being monolingual. As we think about these code talkers and their unique contribution to America's history, we might wonder what would have been lost if these tribal languages had died, if tenacious native peoples hadn't struggled to preserve and pass on their spoken words. And who knows, American Indian people may be called upon again to defend our nation and use their words in the language of victory. Let's sing some Indian song here. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, yeah, hey, 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 During World War I, our people were not recognized as U.S. citizens. So why the hell would they give their lives to a country that didn't see them as people? It, they were still treated bad, so why the hell? Why? Why? And it was a really simple answer. They said, because this is still home. By now... It's well known that Native people joined the military in greater numbers than any other ethnic group in the United States. Some say because it's a decent career path, especially given the discrimination that Indigenous people still face in this country. Others say that it goes back to the boarding school era, which were run more like boot camps than educational institutions. But we say because we know that we joined the military because we want to protect our land. This land has been our home before it became the United States and will always and forever be native land. Decoded is a production of Ampers, 
Diverse radio for Minnesota communities with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.